Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Sencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Sencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Sencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Sencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Sen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Sen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very exciting founder that we have today. I mean, we're going to be talking about doing IPOs at 29 years old, you know, and, and other crazy stuff. So I think that you're all going to love the episode that we have uh, here waiting for you. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Raymond Chang. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate uh, for, um, uh, the, the opportunity. Thank you. So born and raised, at least raised, you know, until you were 13 in Taiwan. So how was life growing up there? You know, I think Taiwan is a really, really nice place. People are super friendly. I think the country is shown that, you know, um, we're very innovative um, and we're very kind of tech focused. So and education is obviously a big part of, um, you know, pretty much everyone uh, in Taiwan. So, um, you know. I have, I have my, I remember growing up, my parents always tell me like, you, 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 the most important thing is to get the best education possible. And that was probably one of the reasons why, you know, we moved to the States as well, um, is to pursue and, and get better education. I mean, you moved here to the U.S. at 13, but I guess that was also motivated by military duties. Is <laughs> that right? Yeah, because, you know, in Taiwan, essentially you have to either you know, leave the country before you turn 13 or you have to, you know, finish your military service before being able to, you know, go abroad. 
Wow. So, I mean, you landed in Texas. So yes. I'm sure that that was quite a culture shock for you guys. It was. And back then, I obviously, you know, need the 26 alphabets. But if you actually put them together in any way, I wouldn't know. So I kind of sat through, you know, all my classes the, um, the first, you know, uh, one or two years. I remember I was actually super advanced in, in math. So I was actually taking like high school math as a, a junior uh, high schooler. Um, sixth grader, seventh grader, um, but obviously, like I, you know, everything else, I was struggling. Uh, so it actually took me about two years before I could actually, um, you know, basically be able to do basic communication um, uh, in English. Well, I mean, obviously, you didn't do that bad because you went to some of the best schools. I mean, you landed in NYU, then Harvard. I mean, you were here and there, you know, in other interesting, you know, positions, you know, in public policy and. United Nations and working with, uh, with, with politicians. So in your case, actually, one thing that, I was, that was very interesting that I found is that the path that you were going to follow, which was, you know, something maybe around politics, uh, and, and that's why you were in Harvard to really pursue that, ended up taking a different turn. So what happened there? Yeah, you know, I think maybe because... You know, I was very heavily influenced by, you know, kind of my, my, my father and my grandfather, both of them very heavily involved in politics. So somehow I thought that that was going to be my um, career was to get involved in politics. But while studying, you know, public administration, um, you know, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, I realized that, you know, I'm just maybe not fundamentally that interested in politics. And in fact, I was probably more interested in just high tech, in innovation. And so somehow it's um, basically just kind of switched. And I never actually pursue anything in politics thereafter. <laughs> so then tell us about the idea, because literally, you know, it came while, while you were in that process of, of figuring out, you know, if politics was for you or not. I mean, obviously one, one, one idea that came all of a sudden. Yeah, so what happened was this This was actually December of uh, 96. Uh, so I was actually sitting in my old apartment in, uh, in Cambridge. And basically, um, you know, back then, the only way to get on the internet was do this thing called the dial-up internet where you have to, you know, unplug the telephone line. And, and it was actually super slow and et cetera. And I couldn't get, somehow couldn't get connected to, uh, to uh, AOL. And so I got frustrated, went back out to the living room and the Patriot, you know, was playing that, that, that Sunday. And I kind of basically just looked up and, and there was, you know, my old apartment had a, you know, exposed cable line. And all of a sudden I just asked my question, myself a question, you know, the cable line is thicker than the telephone line, the copper wire. So why can't we use it to transmit data? You might be able to do it quicker and faster. And so very quickly, I went back on the internet and, you know, got on Yahoo because, you know, Google wasn't around back then. And I just typed in two words, cable and internet. And sure enough, I discovered that there was, you know, something called a broadband technology. And there was a company, a startup company uh, out in Silicon Valley that was actually looking at this technology. So literally, I quit school the next day. I went back out to, uh, to, to Silicon Valley learn everything about the te technology. And then six months later, I uh, founded the, uh, the first broadband telecom company in Asia. Wow. 
And why did you go to Asia versus staying in the U.S.? Well, because, you know, obviously the technology was based on cable, right? Cable um, TV. And I didn't know any cable operators here in the U.S. And it just so happened that, you know, we have a family friend in, in, in Taiwan that actually owned um, all the cable assets. And I figured, okay, well, then I should probably approach him. Um, and originally, I, actually, I wanted just to introduce the technology to him, um, to the family. And somehow, basically, they said, well, this is great, but, you know, you got to run it. <laughs> so <laughs> I got no choice but to, uh, to just keep going. And then so basically he founded the company towards the end of 96. And, and then by 99, we got enough traction that actually got Microsoft um, to, to be interested in us. And how do you get Microsoft to be interested in you guys? I mean, you were, you were quite far away from Microsoft. Yeah, I think we were buying their operating system. <laughs> right. So Microsoft actually, um, at the time, they were very much in interested in the, they called the web TV platform. Right. So, so basically, um, we approached Microsoft, you know, Taiwan office, and we told them that we got all these cable network, we have the technology and et cetera. And so originally we were going to just buy their operating software. And then they saw what we, you know, put together and, and the opportunity. And I guess one conversation led to another. Um, and they ended up, uh, you know, investing in uh, my first startup company, Gigamedia. Hey, not bad. And what is not bad at all is doing an IPO at 29 years old. So how the hell did that happen, Raymond? That's incredible. You know, obviously, you know, when somebody like Microsoft, you know, took 10% of the company, it obviously completely raises your profile. And then the next thing you know, you know, basically Goldman Sachs came knocking on the door. They want to do an IPO for us. I had no idea what the IPO was um, and had to, re you know, read it up and stuff. But eventually, six months later, we managed to pull uh, together a, a $280 million IPO on NASDAQ. And it was Goldman and Deutsche Bank that, you know, were two underwriters. That's amazing. So you were able as well to go through, um, through that uh, dot-com bust. So, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays that they, they haven't gone through one of those, say, corrections. Uh, and I think that as an entrepreneur, it's good to be able to experience the highs and the lows so that whenever, you know, you have another correction, you know, you know, what, what you already experienced and how you can apply some of those lessons learned. So I guess how was going through that dot-com bust for you and what were some of the lessons that you, that you learned? I think basically um, the, the key lessons are, number one, timing is important, right? Two is that, you know, don't play into greed, right? Because nothing lasts, you know, forever, right? At the end of the day, you need to have very, very solid core, you know, technology. You need to have very strong balance sheet. Um, and you need to basically make sure that the company you know, has the resources to go through the ups and, and, and downs, right? And, and the other thing that I, I realized that if you actually build business around, you know, if your only motivation is about making money, then this is probably not for you. Because I can tell you, you know, 90% of the time, you know, people fail, right? And you learn from it and you do it again. Right. So it's, it's number of, of, you know, iteration and yeah, sure. Like 
you know, we hear about all these successful, you know, glorious sort of, you know, outcomes, but not everyone gets lucky, right? You really just have to kind of just enjoy the process and realize that you are hopefully helping to solve big problems for the society. So yeah. you need to be basically motivated beyond just, you know, financial and, 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 and money. And, and I think it's very important to, to understand that. So with Giga Media, you were for quite a, a little bit. You know, you were there for about almost six years. Yeah. But then, you know, you really decided, even though Giga Media, you know, is, is sticked around and, and all of that as a company, which uh, is a miracle because most of the companies at that time, you know, they went bust, you know, with, with, with the bubble evaporating. But in your case, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And, and tell us about your next baby, Lucky Pay. Yeah, so, you know, in 2003, 2004, I realized, you know, Taiwan is, it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's still a, a market of only 20 million population. It's, it's a small market, right? And, you know, so basically, I, I figure, okay, you know what, maybe we, I should look at something else. And that was sort of the beginning of, you know, 2003, 2004, that was sort of the beginning of this amazing China, you know, growth uh, story that everybody you know, kind of talked about. So I, yeah, I decided to basically venture over to China. And as a Taiwanese going over to China actually was not easy because even though we speak the language, historically, there's been tons of conflicts between the, you know, Taiwan and China and et cetera. So um, I had to overcome that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, when I got to China, what I discovered was even back then, television was ubiquitous. You know, it's a scenario where there's rising consumer um, uh, spending power. And so I kind of said, well, maybe we could use television as a way to basically um, penetrate the market. So that was that was sort of the idea. Um, and somehow I managed to convince the, the television company, which is state-owned, which is not easy, right? It's all government-owned, yeah. to, uh, to set up a 24-hour dedicated uh, home te television uh, shopping channel with me. And yeah, it turned out to be an immediate success. Like, I remember, um, you know, nobody actually believed that, you know, we can pull this off. But even our first year, we did close to about, you know, $100 million of sales. Wow. First year. Yeah. That is unbelievable. And how yeah. did you guys go about uh, capitalizing the business? I actually, you know, basically raised capital from, um, was three uh, VC funds, was Lightspeed, which is a US-based venture fund. DT Capital is actually a, a China a VC. And Intel Capital. <laughs> basically, I, you know, I realized that um, you never want to go into a business um, you know, underfunded. You got to make sure you have enough capital. So I was actually able to raise $15 million um, with only a 10-page PPT. And somehow I convinced these three guys to back me. Uh, I remember, like, for example, when I was talking to Intel Capital uh, at the time, they absolutely loved the idea. But the question they asked me was, you know what? We got to make sure everything we do, it has to have a, a strategic angle. So what is the strategic angle here with Intel Capital, in, with, with Intel, right? <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah. I believe we're going to sell a lot of the PCs to a lot of these, you know, um, you know, the Chinese homes. And, you know, if you actually invest in, you know, Lucky Pie, 
I'll make sure that uh, every single PC that we sell has an Intel inside. Otherwise, we wouldn't sell AMD. So <laughs> in any event, that was that it, it's only we, we did have that conversation, but I'm sure that they didn't make uh, their investment decision based only on that. But but um, yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, at the time, somehow, you know, I was able to convince, you know, both international and local VCs and make sure that we have enough sufficient funding to get uh, everything started. Yeah. Um, so we started out with $15.5 million capital. And then subsequently, I raised capital from Lehman Brothers and Goldman. And in fact, you know, we raised $50 million from the two of them combined. And Lehman, you know, two months after, you know, we received their investments, you know, they got into trouble. So again, timing, right? So we were very, very lucky because yeah, no if we waited, um, you know, that probably would not have happened. So um, I got kind of lucked out on that one as well. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how did you go about being uh, overseas? Uh, in, because now, now, you know, before then, at that point, probably uh, VCs were always of the mindset of only investing in a company that was a bike right away from their office. Uh, now, I think that the, the mentality has shifted quite a bit, especially with COVID, where they all had to get adjusted to Zoom and, and, and doing it all via, via online. But at that point, I'm sure it was not easy to convince investors in a different country that are investing in early stage to invest in your business. How did you manage to do that? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, you know, all these VCs, they, that was sort of the beginning, I guess, I guess of this China you know, boom. So basically everybody that I talked about um, had a big China operations. So they had either a dedicated China fund or, you know, local offices in Hong Kong. Um, so we were able to basically, you know, um, get in front of those, get, get in front of those guys. But, you know, one thing that was actually very important was um, I want to make sure that we have the capital from both overseas and also domestically uh, from China. And um, so because I believe that's sort of a, a, a nice sort of, um, you know, balance to have both. 
Um, so we were very, very careful not to only raise capital either you know, domestically or only raise capital from uh, overseas. Got it. And in your case, there was a nice uh, outcome here. Uh, there was a nice uh, exit, um, and it was reported for $160 million. So tell us how this acquisition came about. Well, it, I guess in 2011, you know, we had obviously a pretty successful business then, one of the largest um, conglomerates um, in Asia called the Lotte Group uh, from Korea. Um, they actually had a very successful television shopping business in Korea. And so they were looking to, you know, wanted to do the same in China. And so, but instead of basically um, doing it all from scratch, they they basically figured maybe it's easier just to buy an existing business. So that's sort of what happened. Uh, so they approached us. I, I decided to sell the business because, you know, at that point, you know, I've been in China for about six, seven years. And, you know, my, my, my uh, kids were growing up and, and, and I thought, okay, maybe it's time to um, come back to the States. And also because I saw um, the emergence of, um, you know, players like Alibaba that, yeah. you know, I believe will eventually take over everything. So basically I thought it would be time to, good time to sort of exit. So I, I did in 20, 2011, we sold the business. Nice. And even before coming to the U.S., you got tapped on the shoulder by your neighbor. So what happened there? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was going to just wait, you know, a couple more years and then, and for my son to graduate from high school and then come back. But, and then one of my neighbors approached me because, you know, he was actually, um, had started to consolidate a bunch of car dealerships and, you know, service locations, um, throughout China. So he asked me to basically help him to, um, uh, you know, uh, restructure the business and eventually the company, you know, uh, was listed in Hong Kong and uh, also Taiwan. It was a dual listing and I helped them to basically bring in additional capital. So we raised money from uh, CDH, one of the largest uh, private equity funds in, in, in China. And then essentially just hand over the business to them, you know, a year later. Um, so, um, so yeah, so basically that was sort of a very short um, gig that I did and spent, you know, less than two years on that one, but it was also a successful one, you know, in the sense that, you know, we also helped to manage, uh, raise, you know, about $160 million for the business. Now coming to the U S, uh, when you were here, you were exposed to the, um, your, your mother-in-law was going through cancer, unfortunately. And, and that, that experience, that journey, um, got you closer to, to seeing the benefits of cannabis. So what were some of the benefits and, and how did that lead you to, to starting your next company? Yeah, I mean, she was going through chemo and, and, and basically it was just, you know, her lifestyle was horrible. She was, you know, having pain, you know, all over her body. Um, and it was just seeing her go, going through something like that was just so sad, right? And um, somehow, you know, the doctor that, you know, we had good relationship with suggested that maybe we should maybe look at some of these natural and other you know alternative methods and um so he introduced us to to cannabis and and, and my mother-in-law decided to use it and immediately we saw a, a a a huge turnaround in terms of her ability to cope with pain and also she just had a fundamentally a much better lifestyle and and that was like 
wow, this is really quite amazing. But the experience she, she went through, um, it was not consistent because I guess the, um, you know, most of the peop- time, you know, when people produce cannabis, inconsistency in the, you know, the, the inability to, to, to produce good quality uh, cannabis um, all the time and, re- and, and being able to repeat that process um, continues to struggle. And as a result of that, you know, we would see that, you know, she's good one day and then, you know, not so good the other day. So I just kind of like, okay, you know what? The medicinal benefit of cannabis, is, it's awesome. But somehow we got to use technology and science to ensure that we treat this as more of a, like a medicine. So quality and consistency is so important versus, you know, just a recreational, you know, kind of art form. Right. So that's, that's kind of why I got into the industry. So, I mean, what was that process like of getting into it? Because not an easy industry, full of regulation, very new. So what was that process like? Yeah. So what happened was I went out to, um, you know, Vegas um, to attend the largest trade show, um, MJ Biz. And when I got there, I, you know, I didn't know anybody in the industry. But when I walked the floor, you know, what I realized is that um, everyone is actually only providing piecemeal solutions. So, for example, you see a bunch of people who do only LED lights. But the only thing they care about is the impact of lights on plants. But they assume everything else is being held constant or everything else is irrelevant. But when you talk to the growers, you realize that, okay, lights are important, right? But airflow, humidity, temperature control, fertilizer, right? All these other things are just as important, if not more, right? So in order to really kind of grow and produce good quality cannabis flowers, you need to basically have a very different mentality, which is, look, you need to look at this in totality and take a more systematic approach, right? Where you can actually control every aspect of growing to ensure, right, that the quality is going to be there at the end of the day, right? And that's exactly what we are offering, which is a integrated solution. So it's kind of like we're the first one to introduce Apple-like ecosystem where everything just works very much all kind of connected that you can actually control every aspect of it. And as a result of that, we deliver higher consistency and also repeatability, which is super important for medicinal use of cannabis. And how do you guys make money there? So we have two business models. With people who can afford to buy our system, we will sell them the hardware and there's a 10% recurring SaaS revenue, right? Um, So that's one approach. Um, But the other approach is we actually come in, we built the facility for you and it's a 10 year partnership whereby we get compensated based on the amount of, you know, good quality cannabis is actually being produced. So it's kind of like a yield based, um, uh, you know, partnership. So we're the solution provider. We don't actually plant, you know, and, and, and touch plants directly. So we're non-plant touching company, but we give you all the turnkey solutions. We help you to do it. And basically, um, being this, you know, kind of a, 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 a system integrator that gives you the whole end-to-end solution is essentially what we're offering. Now, you've been always uh, very strategic as the way that you would finance your companies. And here you kind of like took a, 
a little bit of a different approach very early on. But uh, tell us, how did you go about bringing in the capital to be able to to ramp up? Yeah, I'm always, you know, in the belief that you need to make sure that you never undercapitalize the company, right? Don't care so much about dilution, right? You know, I would rather basically own this smaller percentage of a huge successful company than being a solo, you know, investor of a tiny little company, right? So I don't, I don't really care about dilution. I want to make sure the company is well capitalized and have the ability to scale and really kind of solve big problems, right? So I think that's has always been sort of my, um, you know, approach to things. A lot of the, um, you know, founders, they, um, they don't think strategically, they don't think big, you know, and, um, and, and, and as a result, um, we see so many opportunities missed because during, you know, in a, in a good time, sure. Like, you know, uh, you know, you can always maybe go out and raise money when you need it. But during the bad times, if you're not well capitalized, you know, you become irrelevant. Yeah. Right. And in this case, I mean, you guys say it went public. Is that right? Yeah. So basically, you know, we went public pretty early. We went public in January of uh, 2021. Um, I think we were probably the third or fourth um, non-plant touching, we call it ancillary companies in the cannabis space that went public. And we raised, you know, initially, you know, through IPO, we raised $50 million. But because the the demand was so strong that we follow it up immediately two weeks later with another $80 million raised. So in in total, you know, we raised a little bit over $130 million. And that really kind of, you know, gives us a nice cushion to build, you know, and scale the business from that point. Now, in terms of the, the business itself, Imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision for Agrify is fully realized. What does that world look like? We want to basically work with the best partners to be able to produce the best quality cannabis flowers for both recreational and medicinal use using our solutions. Because I, I believe fundamentally, we're only touching the surface of, you know, because there's been so little research done this far on the medicinal um, benefits of cannabis. I think they're, you know, if, if people do more and more research, they're going to find more, right? So far, for example, we only know, you know, the impact of THC and CBD, but in cannabis flower, there's over like several hundred different, you know, chemical compounds, right? So, so I think there's going to be a lot more, you know, new medicinal benefits that could be discovered, but, Knowing that is not enough. Somehow, we need to be able to produce the same consistent, good quality flowers every single time. Right? You can't have a scenario whereby you know the doctor tells you, "Hey, you know what? Take between one to ten pills." Right? <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, how's that going to work? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, so it's very, very important that somehow. You know, we allow our customers to produce high quality, you know, a biomass every single time very consistently so that basically the medicinal benefits of cannabis could really be realized. That's amazing. Now, obviously, 
what a run that it has been. You know, a tremendous entrepreneurial journey that you've uh, embarked on. So one question that I wanted to ask you is if I was to put you into a time machine, Raymond, and, and bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that time where you were in Harvard and uh, that idea came to, to your mind and you were thinking about maybe building a business. If you were able to sit down with that younger self and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Enjoy the process and don't be motivated only by greed. The more important thing is about helping to solve big problems. And if you do that successfully, you'll get very well compensated, right? But the focus should be on solving problems, not about just, you know, not, not just financially driven. I love that. Raymond, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so they can always uh, reach me by email. It's, um, you know, raymond.chang at agrify.com. And um, so that's probably the best way to, uh, to reach me. Amazing. Well, Raymond, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy the conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.